You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Well, hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I am your host, Dr. Leo Stevens, and yes, it has been a while. I hope you have all been having a lovely winter around Australia, and indeed a lovely summer for those of you who listen in from the Northern Hemisphere. For my part, my wife and I were very happy to welcome a new baby to our family, and I took a much needed break from podcast production to be on hand for the nappy changes. But I will spare you the details of that and get back to why we are all here, which is to listen to the stories and insights from incredible leaders of Australian research, innovation, and entrepreneurship. And what a way to jump back in, because today I am very pleased to welcome Dr. Tim Boyle, the Director of Innovation and Commercialization at Australia's premier nuclear science facility, ANSTO. In this role, Tim is overseeing the strategic planning of ANSTO's new innovation precinct for Southwest Sydney, including the Nandan Accelerator for startup businesses, whilst he also facilitates industry and researcher access to the nuclear facility itself for projects as diverse as nuclear medicine, material science, radiocarbon dating, and pollution monitoring. It's a role that Tim... This role is one that builds on Tim's long history of leadership and advocacy in research commercialization. And Tim was at the leading edge of the adoption of early access IP processes in Australia that helped open up our publicly funded research institutions to industry collaboration. Tim is the chair of the International Alliance of Technology Transfer Professionals, as well as a director of Knowledge Commercialization Australia, and we join him just after the successful completion of the KCA National Conference held in Melbourne. Dr. Tim Boyle, welcome to Lab Notes. Thanks, Leo. Uh, I'm an avid listener, and it's great to be here. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show, Tim, and I know you're fresh off the KCA conference down in Melbourne, so perhaps we can start there. What are your reflections on that event and what it's shown for the commercialization ecosystem in Australia? So I think we've seen this continual building of interest in the commercialization ecosystem over the last few years. I think the first one was we started to see this uplift was around 2016. In the past, we'd seen around 100 delegates, and in 2016, after NISA was launched, we ended up with around 140 delegates, and it's been growing ever since. And this year we had over 200 plus delegates. And it's also showing a, a broad range of changes in the profession, not just interest from a policy perspective, but the profession of technology transfer and research commercialization has moved from being just about licensing and doing startup companies to also embracing industry engagement and partnerships for sponsored research, strategic engagement, uh, place-based innovation such as accelerator programs, incubators, and innovation precincts. So we're seeing this growth in the profession, but the skill set that underpins them all is all the same. Thanks, Tim. And I guess the KCA conference is only one element of your work. Your substantive role is actually at ANSTO. Can you tell us a little about what you do with the Nuclear Science Organization? Yeah, so ANSTO is a, a really interesting organization. We're a, a publicly funded research organization that focuses on nuclear science and technology. So we're similar to, say, CSIRO, but we don't do comprehensive research. We focus only on peaceful applications of nuclear technology. Those applications are mostly in material science or nuclear fuel cycle, environmental and nuclear medicine and human health. So we've got three core themes. And my my role as Director of Innovation and Commercialization 
uh, looks across the whole site. It's a corporate innovation role where we look at intellectual property commercialization and management. I look at how we commercialize that IP, strategic partnerships that are a multi-party where they're more than just sort of one-to-one -one sponsored research project. We have another team that does that. I run the Nantin Innovation Center, which is a community and Ansto interface. Uh, where we have community startups, we have Ansto spin-out companies, we have a design innovation program, and we also have a graduate institute where we have students, PhD students from all Australian universities can come and collaborate with Ansto researchers on their research. Uh, we have a home for them, so we give them experience and student experience within the Nandy Innovation Centre through that Graduate Institute. We also run programs so that when they finish their PhD, they've got skills that can take them to careers beyond just being an academic or academia. Uh, so my role is pretty, very, very broad. Uh, sometimes I wish it was more focused, but it is also fascinating that I can pick up different things on any one day and learn something new, which is what, what keeps me going. Absolutely, yeah. And like I say, it sounds like an extremely broad portfolio, but let's talk about how you got there before we get into the weeds of technology translation. Mm -hmm. Where did you start your career? What brought you into this space of, of thinking about science and technology? So I think it's uh, when I was younger, I wanted to be a, a pilot. I wanted to join the RAF. You know, I was about 10 years old and Top Gun came out. And obviously that inspired a lot of people to want to join the military and fly planes. And I wanted to be like Maverick and fly around, not on an aircraft carrier, but fly fast jets. And then I had my eyes tested for the first time and I found out that I was colorblind. And when you, when you find you're colorblind, they say that these are the careers that you can't do. First one is a pilot, second one is a chemist, third one is an electrician. And I think at that point, something, a bit of a, a switch was that I know that there's credentialing and a lot of compliance around being a pilot and electrician but being a chemist, it's a university degree, and then you go and get a job. And, and, and no one's going to test my color blindness. It might make it more difficult on the job. So I decided at that point I was going to stick it to the optometrists and all those people that say no and become a chemist. Uh, I was really lucky that when I was at school, I had a fantastic physics teacher, Mr. Brett McKay, who actually went on to become the Australian Teacher of the Year in the Prime Minister's Prizes. And I was just really lucky that I had a teacher that would challenge, challenge my um, thoughts on science, uh, had come from an industry background and done research and then moved into teaching. So I had experience of science that was more than just being a teacher straight from university. And that, I think that appreciation rubbed off me and I pursued a science career. Uh, I was, wasn't the greatest undergraduate student, but in my fourth year, for some reason, doing honours, it all clicked together and I ended up scraping through with a first. Uh, and did industry-sponsored PhD project. Fantastic. And what was your thesis about? What were you actually studying through that, that PhD journey? Yes, I was working on antimicrobial resistance before it was a, a cool thing to worry about. And it was originally a, a project sponsored by AMRAD, and later they demutualized a company called Avexa. So we are working on this problem of when bacterial cell walls grow, the normally grow amino acid sequence that is a D-ala, a D-ala, two alanines. And what happens is, is that when a mutation occurs, it's, it's some bacteria that means that growing cell wall becomes a D-alanine and then a, a lactate. And that single change from a nitrogen amide bond to an oxygen means that the, the existing last line of defense drugs, such as vancomycin, 
and derivatives of vancomycin, like tacoplanin, no longer work. So we're, we're designing pe new peptides that bound specifically to both DLA-DLA and DLA-DELAC. Uh, it's quite fascinating. I had a number of patents for my honours project and my PhD project. Uh, working with industry is always good. I think that set my tone that science shouldn't always be for science sake. Science should have a purpose. Science creates impact. Uh, so the work was subsequently commercialised by Vexa to a company called Bolivia Pharmaceuticals and went into preclinical trials. Um, this is a long-term research project. And I think there's still elements of it occurring. Yeah, amazing. And I guess through that journey in a PhD, you often have you know your supervisors as mentors for one, but mm. also your industry partners too. Mm. What were you learning from those industry partners you're working with about you know science, but also like business? Yeah. So the thing that you know everyone's got great ideas, and the thing that really struck home was I had a great idea, and in the first meeting with, with our industry supervisor, it was a guy called Jonathan Coates, and I still remember he said, "That's great, Tim," but has anyone else done this before? And even if they haven't, no one has done it before, why would someone pay for this approach over a different approach? And I think that put a commercial lens. And later when in my career, I have similar discussions where I have an idea and then it would be who would pay for that. And I think that customer-driven approach is really, really important. And soon after your PhD, you headed off to the UK and worked for Johnson & Johnson and the U University College London we see a lot of the people that I interview for this, they do have that overseas travel. It's quite impactful on their mm. thinking and kind of broadening their horizons. Is that true for you as well? I mean, what did you learn from being in the UK? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, I worked for Johnson & Johnson as, a, um, as a, a research fellow. And then I moved to the UK. I was in Johnson Johnson Research here in Australia. But in the UK, it was, I moved into an academic environment at UCL on a BBSRC fellowship. And I realized really quickly that I didn't want to become an academic. Um, having you know, worked on the industry projects in my PhD and then as an industry sort of postdoc and having a fellowship which was quasi-independent research, I didn't really warm to it. I, I, like having, I like applied research and the projects that I was being encouraged, the problems that I was being encouraged to pursue weren't applied. Uh, I, I like having goals to work towards. I think that was something that I, I learned about myself. And really quickly, Certainly in other cultures, I worked out that being an academic was pretty hostile. My academic peers and colleagues weren't necessarily always supportive and it was often competitive. And there was a culture sometimes where if you're sending someone to the printer, you'd send a master's student down to the printer to collect your printout before your academic peers could get hold of it and see what your ideas were. So it was a low trust environment. I didn't, didn't like that. I like a generosity model. And also, I realized that after the two years of in that fellowship role that you know my students would come and go but I was building relationships with my students but not my, my peers and when you're you move to a new country and a new culture you don't have friends and family or support network and I missed having that social collaboration with, with peers through work and I didn't realize that if I kept on this academic career track potentially in if I stayed in the UK in 30 years time when I'm about to retire I'd still be socializing potentially with people in their early 20s, and it wasn't, it wasn't for me. That's really interesting. I mean, we usually talk about academic environments and universities mm. as collaborative mm. places. It definitely mm. doesn't sound like it was your experience. Yeah, and I think this is really before the impact agenda and the collaborative nature. Back then, in sort of the mid-2000s, so we're going back then, 15, really 20 years ago, the culture was very much papers had the least amount of authors on, and you wanted to be the first author. 
And now, obviously, it's about the impact agenda came in, and that was through the, um, the REF in the UK. And I was there when the first round came through. And it was very much then, it was about how, how many names you can stack on papers from how many organizations to show true collaboration. So the nature of what was rewarded in research changed. But I think the damage had been done from, well, not damage, my, my perceptions have changed. The other thing I noticed is when I got there and talking to people at conferences from the UK academic environment, they were like, why did you leave an industry job? The aspiration in the UK was you finished your PhD and went to industry. Those that couldn't make it in industry went to academia, which is the opposite of the experience in Australia where success is seen as staying in academia because there isn't many industry jobs. So I questioned, oh, had I made the right decision going to pursue academia and ultimately decided that it wasn't the right decision. So yeah, I guess hearing about some of those experiences in your UK academic life, it did push you out of academia and into these industry roles. And, and your next one was with Thomson Reuters in the UK. Can you tell us a bit about, about that role? Yeah, so after I decided I didn't want to be an academic, obviously you lean on your network. And I'd met people drinking at the pub down the bottom of the UCL Immunology Building, which is in the BT Tower. And across the road from that building was where Thompson Scientific at the time was. Thompson Scientific was a publishing house. They publish a number of journals and have a number of competitive intelligence solutions for the pharmaceutical industry. And they said, oh, come and, come and work with us. We have a role coming up as a, a, product, develop, a product development slash R&D manager within their, uh, their team looking at the pharmaceutical and chemical markets. And they wanted someone with an industry background. So I ticked the box because I'd had a, a research role in industry. So I left the UCL and went into that role. And it was, it was fascinating. It was a complete eye-opening experience. Uh, I was working on big software development projects. And the corporate environment moves very fast. People are coming and going. Opportunities are created really quickly. And if you're competent, you can rise quite fast. So I had experience doing research and development management. I then moved into being a business analyst. I had a stint as a product manager. I did project management on big complex projects. And then I moved into a custom solutions team, working at the coalface with customers, capturing requirements and translating those into the products and also doing technical sales. And that was just a really rewarding job. It was a, a great company to work for. And that business spun out into Clarivate Analytics. And um, the products that I, I worked on, they're still selling. And I was quite lucky there also. We won a Queen's Award for Innovation. You know, it was a, a great experience as well. But it was time to come back to Australia. I've been in the UK for nearly five years. Didn't really want a corporate role. I wanted to want something that was in the university and higher ed sector. And that sort of led me to technology transfer. Hold that thought, Tim, because I definitely want to get to technology transfer. But, but first, in your last answer, you mentioned something that I wanted to pick up, which was around the project management role that you had had and that experience in your CV, because I think that's something that's maybe missed from a lot of academic training, from a lot of PhD training, is the project management side. Obviously, as you get further into an academic career, you end up doing project management quite frequently, but we haven't perhaps been trained in that skill set. Do you think that period of commercial project management has been important in you becoming an effective director and leader in science now? I think so. I think project management in that software space, and I worked in waterfall project management and agile software development. It's not just about managing red flags and Gantt charts and things. It's really about how you motivate and inspire people to do things on your terms and timeline. And that's a subtle art that not many people have. 
So being a project manager is a tough job. I think when you translate that across into a science environment, now I don't like being that rigid project manager, having a meeting, running line by line through detail, putting red flags. That's not my style of project management. I sort of shy away from the formal stage-gated project management approach. But the soft skills associated with very complicated project management around motivating people and how to get the best out of the people and influencing, uh, I use every day. Mm. And also how you structure and bring discrete complicated projects and discrete elements that you can manage individually and then bring together at a convergence point. That's something I do every day as well. Whether it's working with different teams across Ansto or it's working um, with researchers and on their research projects, which can be quite complicated if you don't keep in, you know, generate smaller bite-sized chunks. So I think project management is something that's very important, but you don't need to have really high Prince two level project management qualifications in a research environment, but the, the soft skills mm. you need to have. Yeah, really interesting. So let's come back now, as you were about to, to the return to Australia in 2009, mm. and you picked up a job with UNSW Innovations, and it was at a time when Australia was really transitioning mm. more and more towards this applied research and kind of industry engagement model. You were mm. part of that transition at UNSW. Mm. How did you find the culture here when you landed, and what's changed yeah, so when I landed, it was a transitional point in policy space as well. Now, prior to 2009, there was a scheme called Comet, which was a leveraged funding scheme that was replaced by Commercialisation Australia. And the Comet grant scheme, when that retired and Commercialisation Australia came on board, all the funding rules around translational research funding were changing as well. So the model that NSI was operating under uh, broke as soon as that policy shift happened, because it was all around setting up spin-out companies um, to leverage Comet funding. But when that requirement wasn't there anymore, it broke the business model. I remember this is just after the GFC. So the appetite for industry and the investment appetite wasn't necessarily there either. So that led to a seismic shift in New South Innovations at the time and the, the CEO, he resigned. Um, we had a period of flux. And when that happens, wholesale change that happens and big leadership change in any organization Sometimes it feels a little bit like musical chairs. Everyone's dancing, feels they're dancing around the room and there might be 30 chairs in the room and they think when the music stops, there might only be five chairs. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of turnover and I was lucky that I transitioned. I started doing a lot of market analysis, IP landscaping and more supporting function uh, into doing commercialization management, uh, innovation management and doing you know, a broader scope of work and just sort of business development and licensing. And that held me in good stead because we had massive um, attrition in the, in the business development and licensing team. And I was basically able to pick and choose my projects. And I was, where I was still working in physical sciences, doing deals across everything, life sciences, IT, engineering, and physical sciences. And it was really highly productive. You know, I learned a lot really fast. I was quite fortuitous that in 2011, when the, the dust settled, we had a great CEO, in Kevin Cullen, who had come from... University of Glasgow and he brought with him a model called Easy Access IP and the premise of Easy Access IP is about picking the winners to commercialize but also focusing on the industry partnerships and collaborative model and, and putting IP as a tool to drive that. So many, many people mightn't appreciate that you know, a busy tech transfer office might get between 100 and 150 invention disclosures a year they might have 10 BD people if they're lucky. 
So people have somewhere between 10 and 20 matters they're working on at any given time. So of those 100 invention disclosures, Sorry, sorry to interrupt, Tim, but you might need to explain what an invention disclosure is to some of our audience. Okay, so an invention disclosure is where a researcher ha has an invention or some IP and they formally disclose that to the commercialization office. And there's you know, quite a comprehensive form to fill in that details everything from what the research is, who they've spoken to about it, what it does, what the they think the potential invention is, some early aspects of IP landscaping and market. Mm -hmm. And it's really a formal document they sign that puts a, a mark in the ground that says, we've got, we've got something here that needs further investigation. But from, from a statistics perspective, only a handful, less than 5% of the invention disclosures received by a university tech transfer office a year will make more than a million dollars in revenue. About half of those left, 95% left, you might be able to get a deal done, but you'll probably lose money if you count the OPEX required to do the deal in terms of resources of people required and their time. And then it's half of them, there might be an encumbrance of ownership, a disclosure or something else that, that knocks them out and you can't proceed to commercialize with them. The challenge is if you take a purely commercial approach to tech transfer and you're only saying yes and we'll patent 5% of your disclosures, you'll, you'll set a culture within the organization that you don't listen to them, you don't value their work, but the work they're doing is, is valuable and the IP is valuable, it's just not financially valuable in a traditional commercialization sense. So the Easy Access IP model took that IP that we could still transact on, that was where we'd file patents on it, but instead of trying to license it for a lot of money, we would take that and we would say, offer it to anyone who could build a product or a service from that, tell us what they were gonna do with it. And if they were successful, attribute UNSW's brand to, to their technology, so it was powered by UNSW, we would offer them that, that license that technology for free. And by doing that, we build a relationship with the industry partner. Also the knowledge and know-how to build a product or service sits in that research group. So you start to set up a dialogue for an industry partnership for sponsored research and consulting and, or collaborative research if there's leveraged funding available. And that was the fundamental shift in the landscape of how tech transfer worked in the Australian university system. So shortly after UNSW launched this, and we launched this at the KCA conference in Auckland on the 11th of November, 2011, Remembrance Day. After that, every university in New South Wales adopted the model, except for the University of Sydney. So there was 10 Easy Access IP universities in New South Wales. Mm. So you could say that New South Wales was the most liberal place for IP on the planet at the time. It had the most progressive tech transfer models. And that was highly productive. So in that time, 2011 through to 2013 at UNSW, I did maybe 60 or 70 licenses not, and it's easier to give do a high value license for more than a million dollars than it is to give IP away for free. That's that was the learning. Yeah. Uh, so highly productive. But through that, the third party funding through linkage grants at the time um, started to started to shift as well off the back of Easy Access IP, and UNSW started to win almost half of the pool of of ASA linkage funding because we were easy to work with. We had industry friendly agreements and terms. 
The Easy Access IP license is a one-page license. It's non-negotiable. So it makes it really easy to do. It's really transparent. And by making things easier and taking the burden away from the industry partners so you don't start a dialogue within the negotiation around IP and money, it becomes about how we can help you build a product and service. You change the, the narrative of right from commercialization to helping and helping economic development and impact. And is that still continuing today, Tim? Because I guess unless they're in a commercial research unit at a university, I think most of our audience probably wouldn't have heard the term easy access IP. The, the easy access IP brand may have faded away, but prior to 2011, no university that I can think of in Australia had a business unit that did specifically industry liaison or industry engagement. Now everyone does. Everyone has small licensing and commercial teams and big industry partnerships and business development teams. And that's a direct result of shifting the model towards collaboration, industry engagement. So Easy Access IP still happens, just not with the one-page license now. And at UNSW, we did a, a review in 2014, and we looked at where the income was coming through at the time, and we were doing $5 million of high-value licensing income and 160 to $200 million of knowledge exchange, industry partnership type revenue. So we thought that's really interesting. And there was a report that was published in the UK uh, around the same time as a review of the HIF, the Higher Education Innovation Fund, which is a third stream fund funding technology transfer activities directly, which we don't have in Australia, which we would love. Um, but that the metrics reported in there mirrored the metrics we'd found at UNSW, that the money comes from industry partnerships and collaborative research, not from licensing. Mm. And if you pick the winners for licensing, there's no consequence on the, the total value of money coming in revenue from commercialization. If you focus on a, a mixed model where you leverage IP for commercial partnerships, you can grow a new business that, that's worth 20 times more than the licensing business. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I mean, it's great to hear these numbers and the outcomes. Mm. Do, you, do you have any case studies to add some color to this? What's one that stands out to you as, as an easy access IP collaboration that became a really successful partnership. There is a couple of really, really good ones. The one I like is one called Ramsey Stewart Industrial Design. It's a company. And you and Ramsey Stewart, the founder, had an IRC linkage project that had some IP associated with it. And the industry partner, he was a mining industry partner, and Vision Australia were the main one. And Ewan's visually impaired himself. And he was struggling to enjoy, find his way in buildings, enjoy art galleries, and there was a standard that he wanted to meet that wanted to force buildings to meet for accessibility for people like himself. And the RC Linkage Grant was about to be forfeited because Vision Australia um, had to go to a non-cash contributing partner. Uh, so there was some background IP and we licensed that as part of the deal to sweeten Ewan's contribution in that project. But we did a one easy access IP license. The project was massively successful. Off the back of that, we were able to introduce him to Social Traders, a social enterprise accelerator, which he went through. That led to investment, a social innovation center that he's involved with now. The tool is available, it uses Wi-Fi location. It's widely used now in museums, some buildings. And it's taken a long time to get to that impact, but it all stemmed from the generosity model of saying, we're not gonna be greedy on our background IP. We'll give you access to it, and you can build upon that. And there's another one where we had some results from the St. George Clinical School, which is a UNSW clinical school. And 
they were around some agents that were anti-cancer agents. The, the research was quite entrepreneurial and he wanted access to the IP. He wanted to do a company himself, which we weren't sure if he wanted to do or not, but we took a gamble and there were unvalidated results. We, we didn't think there was a lot of value in them at the time. It would be quite challenging. They were drug repurposing, but he managed to raise quite a lot of money, uh, get a clinical trial up, and that led to raising more money, which he then did a backdoor listing onto the ASX. And they're still going. They've got veterinary products. They've got some phase one clinical work going on. So while they're successful, and what happens is a lot of that money that's invested in that company is being spent back in that lab to fund the research. So UNSW is still winning you know, a decade later almost off transactions. We didn't monetize at the time. We might be able to monetize for a few thousand dollars, but now there's millions of dollars potentially coming in collaborative research funding. So this all speaks to a comparison between the traditional model where we had intellectual property, we licensed it out for a fee and the university collected revenue versus this easy access IP framework where we're happy to give it away for free and let the entrepreneurial researcher or the industry partner do with it what they wish. Do you see now much of an appetite within Australian universities to take the third road, which is taking an equity position in the company, in the entrepreneurial venture itself, and having the university be part of that journey alongside their researcher or their industry partner? Yes, yeah, some, some universities do this already. So I know that University of Sydney has a very strong equity model in their, in their spin-up model. They'd rather take equity than a cash royalty. It used to be very much a fund investor would want to go in with, with the tech transfer office and do a 50-50 million dollar valuation, 500k each, and there'd be 500k capital go in. They'll push it through to a post-seed round where you could generate much larger investment. But that model seems to have shifted now. I think there's so much venture around specifically for deep technologies. And each, each investor has their own sort of model they like to go with. I was looking at three examples from ANU just last week, I was talking to some founders, and they've got a model where they take 10% equity and will assign or license and assign the IP of those companies and let, let, let it go. Because yeah, they realize that they're in the business of research and teaching and everything else is third mission. And if you put onerous commercial terms on IP licensing and transactions and, you don't, and the spin out doesn't happen, then you're sort of failing in that mission. And some, most universities are starting to realize this now. It's a balance. You still have to, to make sure that the university is recognized and rewarded for its contribution in doing the research in the first place. So allow me to shift gears a little, Tim, because up to this point, we've kind of been taking stock of the intellectual property and technology transfer landscape at Australian universities. But perhaps it's not clear to our audience yet that you are far from a passenger on this journey. You're actively driving some of these policy discussions and shifts across Australia. You're the chair of the Alliance of Technology Transfer Professionals, or ATTP, as well as the Director of Policy and Alliances for Knowledge Commercialization Australia, which is the organization behind the conference we mentioned at the start of this episode. How do those roles interact with your, your day job, and how are you going about advocating for change in the Australian research sector? Yeah, so I think it's really important to have good advocacy for what we do. There's not really any good role models in the tech transfer space. And it's a, it's a profession in itself, and I think all that's missing in the policy directive. So we'll unpack this a little bit further. I find that volunteering, you get out what you put in. And volunteering to help advance what I do, I think is important, that's why I do it. And I do this across a number of different organizations. Uh, at local level, with Shy Biz, which is Local Economic Development Alliance, 
at national level with KCA and international level with ATGP. So I think giving back and volunteering is, is really, really important uh, and also very, very gratifying. With, with KCA, it, it has an important function. We have a policy landscape that's largely driven by lobbying groups and they are industry groups and peak university groups. And peak university groups and peak science and technology groups don't necessarily have commercialization experience. And what happens then is we end up with policies that incentivize industry to engage in research and translational research funding for later stage research. But we're missing that piece in between that is about the people that do commercialization, the activities that they do, uh, and mediating between these two parties and optimizing the knowledge exchange channels that sit between the research outcomes and the people that can build products and services. And that's a profession in its own right. It's a skill set there. There's global credentials, which I'll come to in a minute. And if we forget that, it's not like a industry partner walks into a bar and a researcher walks into a bar, they have a beer together, and um, then they decide they're gonna do something and magic happens. They, they might meet that way, but in between, there's IP terms, there's conditions, there's agreements, there's compliance and governance from both the university and from the industry partner's side. And there's a mediator in between. That's a profession itself. Often there's need for someone to introduce the industry partner to the academic or introduce a technology to an industry partner. And these things don't happen by putting things on websites. It's a profession there and it's missed. And that's why I'm passionate about evolving the profession so it's, it's recognised. Last year in Australia, we had the University Research Commercialisation Scheme a Task Force Committee. There was no one on that committee that had any research commercialisation experience. We see continual debates that occur. They're set up by groups like Innovation Oz, which is a great newsletter. But they don't have research commercialisation people or tech transfer professionals on those panels. And articles about research commercialisation tend to have people who are entrepreneurial academics, and there's only a few of those, or um, industry parties, or people that run incubators that have never worked in commercialization advocating on behalf of maybe their stakeholders. I don't think we're gonna really progress the debate around how we, we get more commercialization outcomes and impact until we start to acknowledge that tech transfer is a profession. And in terms of translational research funding and that side of it, I think that's great. Any more money coming into research is fantastic. But we can't expect our researchers to be product development experts and tech transfer professionals, like some of the proposals I've seen. We should support that when we can, but there's not many of them. And if you, start, if you take too many additional responsibilities and stack them on academics, you're taking researchers away from doing research, which they're really good at. And I keep hearing this argument that the more money that goes into applied research and we don't fund fundamental research, then we won't have any fundamental research to apply and commercialize. Well, if we keep expecting researchers to take on more of the load on commercialization, they won't be there to do fundamental research either. And the UK do this since the HIF. They directly fund tech transfer offices and initiatives within them. And if you look what happened in the US recently, they've copied the third stream model from the UK through the CHIPS Plus Act. And now they're directly funding tech transfer activities across all of the, um, the US university ecosystem. 
Yeah, it's really interesting to see those international examples there, Tim. And perhaps before we move on, we should make really clear what these tech transfer roles actually mean for our audience who is not aware. You mentioned this meet cute situation where an industry partner and a researcher meet in a bar and come up with this great idea. But more often than not, these ideas that are being proposed are bigger than just the single researcher and the single industry partner. It's about involving the institutions they work for, and in the researcher's case, that's the university. So tech transfer officers are there to help facilitate the intellectual property management and to ensure that the university has some rigor in deciding which projects it takes forward and can support researchers to do this kind of entrepreneurial activity or, or indeed commercial research. Yeah, and it is, it is a support role. So tech transfer professionals and the tech, all the tech transfer office is to support the researchers. Uh, sometimes we don't see that. Uh, that's, a, that's a cultural thing. And success in commercialization is often when people aren't talking about you because if they are talking about you, it's not going to be usually nice because you're getting in the road. So I think sometimes that it's better in some universities and institutions than others, but it's, it is a definite role and a responsibility that all organizations have in the research space and it's a capability they need uh, and it needs to be funded and funded adequately. We, we can't forget about that in the policy debate. Well, thank you, Tim. That's definitely some passionate advocacy for the tech transfer sector. I might draw a line under this part of the interview for now so we can move on and finish up on the Ansto Innovation Precinct and in particular, the Nandin Accelerator that I know you're quite closely involved in. Can you tell us a bit about that precinct and the businesses you are supporting there? Yes, yeah, so Nandin is the anchor for our innovation precinct. So Lucas Heights was deliberately built when Australia was working out if it wanted to become a nuclear power in the 50s. So a materials testing reactor was built, first commissioned in 1953, first went critical in 1956, and the purpose was materials testing for a power reactor. And that was around having a nuclear power station at Jervis Bay. And over time, it moved to Anstow, and parts of it split to Syro. But the campus itself, it's now close to suburbs. We have houses right up against our buffer zone. In southern Sydney, it's the only knowledge destination. You know, it's the only place that people come to to do deep technology and science. And we have around 8,000 researchers a year that come and travel to Anstow to access our research infrastructure. It's like a, a toolkit for scientists to solve problems. So we have partners for research as users of our infrastructure working on anything from archaeology to zoology, the A to Z of science. Uh, and people actually travel here to our, to our campus and that's an opportunity for us. So we want to modernise our campus to a modern innovation precinct. We started that journey back in 2016-2017 and Nantum as an innovation hub was the activating component to change the culture. It starts by bringing industry and community startups to come and co-locate with us but also graduate students and also our ANSTO researchers and our ANSTO spin-outs working in the same environment so we have a people collision. So that's the premise. We've been going for four years. We have 35 startups now. We have around 100 PhD students that use the space and do residential PhDs uh, in collaboration with ANSTO from all the universities in Australia and New Zealand. We have a number of uh, programs that we run support. We have a design innovation program. We're a member of the Design Factory Global Network, which is 40 leading innovation centers from around the world that use a common strain of design thinking and common culture um, to do. So design thinking is great for thinking, but innovation isn't thinking, it's doing. So we take it that next step and we have a common way of doing things. And we 
currently work with a number of universities, industry partners on bringing these programs and models and, and helping solve applied problems. So we, have, we have a community. We're actually about to launch a new membership category called NAND and SME, focused at SMEs who are interested in joining the nuclear supply chain. And it's a really important time at the moment to do this. We've got a lot of policy initiatives such as AUKUS, the Nuclear Powered Submarine Program. And we want to make sure that we have the industry to support Australia's aspirations in that area. So this will be launched soon and will be free for the first year and we're going to run a series of events and workshops with those interested parties and we'll piggyback off other initiatives such as the Advanced Manufacturing Growth Centres, Nuclear Skills Forum uh, and we'll create a bigger ecosystem. We also have a number of nine industry clusters, which we've, some which have started, some which have existed previously and we bring them into the centre as well. So we have a, a critical mass, it's probably about maybe six or 7,000 people within our innovation community. We're part of the iAccelerate network with the University of Wollongong. Um, so we have regional connections as well. But we work off a generosity model. We can't do it all. Ansto is very niche. But for local econ economic development in the Sutherland Shire and the South District of Sydney, so it includes George River, Bankstown, Liverpool areas as well, there isn't any other university campuses or hospitals. A lot of the big, manufa big manufacturing and research-intensive industry is gone, like Caltex. Um, pharmaceutical manufacturing, Toyota, they're big employees and they're, they've left, they're, they're offshored. So we're looking at our precinct as the sort of the solution for our part of Southern Sydney. And shortly, in the next couple of years, we'll be in a position where we can offer industry to co-locate and build their own buildings and premises in co-location with probably the highest concentration of deep technology innovation infrastructure in the Southern Hemisphere. Well, it's a fantastic ambition, Tim, and certainly the Nandan Innovation Hub is a great start. And I've been in there. There's a sign on the door that really struck me walking in, and I wonder if you know it off by heart. Could you tell us what that sign says? I don't know what it says off by heart, but the premise is to leave your egos and preconceptions at the door. It's a sign that you come in and there's a square on the floor because research organisations can be very hierarchical, but ideas don't have hierarchy. Anyone can have a good idea. Even the cleaner who's observing things on the ground can have an inspired idea that we can develop into a solution that can change the world. You know, the CEO, they see a helicopter view. People on the ground see everything and the most important things. And they're the ones who can challenge the problem. So you need to leave the pecking order and where you sit your ego at the door because anyone can change the world. Anyone with an observation and the willingness to develop a solution to that problem they observe can change the world. Well, I don't think we're going to find a better place to end the interview than on that note. So thank you, Tim. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here today on the Lab Notes podcast. Thanks, Leo. It's been great. Happy to come on board and, and thanks for having me. Well, that's all from Lab Notes today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget you can always check out the episode description for our guest biography and links to all of the organisations mentioned in today's episode. Lab Notes is a production of Eon Labs, with music sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Dr. Nat Harris. If you've liked today's episode, don't forget you can subscribe to get new episodes in your feed and check out our back catalogue for any interviews you might have missed. But that's all for now, so until next time, keep inventing.